Parshas Truma famously details, in great detail, I should add, famously details the construction of the Mishkan, the new tabernacle, the home of Hashem, which will temporarily serve the Jewish people throughout their 40 years of traveling in the desert, eventually replaced permanently by a Beis HaMikdash, and all of the different constituent parts that will make up the Mishkan, all the different clay Mishkan, and eventually the clay HaMikdash, all the different pieces in which would actually make the Mishkan and eventually the Beis HaMikdash functional as a method of serving Hashem. In addition to working out all the details and the halachic particulars, many of the Mefarshim, from classical to contemporary, look to these various parts and pieces of the Mishkan for various symbolic, educational, and spiritual messages that can be understood as being represented by these parts of the Mishkan. So we will try, time permitting, to highlight four such parts of the Mishkan and the various interpretations that are suggested by different classical commentaries. The first I want to mention is the Aron, which of course is the Ark, and in addition to the Ark and everything that that entails, including the fact that you had the Luchos and other special, very highly uh, spiritual and religious and important things contained therein, the Torah tells us a very interesting halacha, that the Ark had to be carried when the Jewish people traveled in the desert by Badim, by poles, but the Torah tells us in Perachafei, Pasuk Tezvav, that these Badim, these poles, are not allowed to be removed. Once they are inserted uh, through various hooks into the side of the Aron, they can never ever be removed, even when the Jewish people are encamped and no one's traveling and there doesn't seem to be any practical need for the poles at that time. They still have to constantly and always remain in place in the Aron. And the question, of course, is why that should be so. So, one simple answer, perhaps, is suggested by the Sefer Hachinuch in his commentary to Mitzvah Tzadi Vav. He says this is to do to the honor that is given and respect that needs to be given to the Aron and the luchos and other important things which are contained in the Aron. And that is in case, in case the Jewish people get a command that they have to move and pick up camp and quickly start getting on the move very quickly and they wouldn't have a chance in a sudden move to pack up properly, the fear would be that they would just quickly start carrying the Aron and get on their journey, which of course would be wrong, because luckily you can only carry the Aron by using the poles. And therefore, to avoid this unlikely, but at least possible, uh, disaster situation, the Torah tells us, keep the poles in there always permanently, even when you're not traveling. That way, in case you have to travel very quickly, you're ready to go, and you can do that properly. A more symbolic, uh, educational, spiritual message is suggested by the Me'iri. I didn't see this inside, but the contemporary uh, work of anthology uh, by Rav Nachshoni quotes the Me'iri, who says that there's a deep and important religious message here. The Aron, understandably, represents great spirituality. The Poles, therefore, he suggests, represent the physicality, that which can hold and carry the spirituality. And the message is exactly that, that there's a necessary uh, symbiotic relationship between spirituality and physicality, that the ultimate message of the Torah, of course, is a spiritual one, but Judaism's and the Torah's unique uh, spiritual contribution and religious contribution is that we do not conceive of a spirituality and a religiosity which can ever be, ever be permanently divorced from physicality. The role of that spirituality is to live in and elevate the physical world. And conversely, of course, the whole purpose of physicality is to ultimately serve higher, more noble spiritual purposes. And that 
connection and relationship between physicality and spirituality, says the Meiri, is symbolized not only by the existence of the poles, but by the fact that the poles can never be separated from the Aron, symbolizing this unique and indelible connection between the two. Moving on, a few psukim later, the Torah describes the Keruvim, the angel forms known as the cherubs, which are engraved out of gold and placed on the lid, or the top, known as the kapores, which goes on top of the aron. And the question, of course, is why we need these. What exactly is this? It's kind of strange to have these cherub-like, angel-like figures with wings staring at each other. Uh, in particular, as some of Farshim note, this seems to go against the general rule that we have from the Torah itself, not to have engraven images. What is the message of these, and why are they placed in such a key location? So Rabbeinu Bachai suggests, uh, perhaps in a lengthy, lengthy piece, uh, at least two different interpretations. One is based on the Rambam in the Mornavuchim, which is a very simple I wouldn't say simple, but at least straightforward explanation. He says the reason that the cherubs look angelic is because they in fact are to symbolize the angels, the malachim, which the Rambam says it's important to remind everyone we believe that malachim exist. What are malachim? The way the Rambam understands the idea of angels. Angels are that spiritual force, or at least it's the word that we use to describe the part of Hashem, the way He communicates with humankind. Hashem has to somehow adapt His completely all-encompassing message into something slightly more finite, although still clearly heavenly and divine, in order to give nevuah, to give prophecy, to talk to human beings. That's done through malachim. And therefore, in order to underscore and to remind us of the existence of malachim and how important it is that we realize that they exist, because it's the key to our belief that Hashem does talk to humankind, the idea of nevuah. Without nevuah, there's no belief in the authenticity of the Torah. Therefore, to underscore that importance and to remind us of the malachim, which serve as that conduit, we have these cherubs, these kruvim, on the aron. The Urban Machai then quotes a second interpretation based on the Gemara Chagiga, which says that the Kruvim had faces of young children. And he says this symbolizes the fact that Hashem's love for us is similar to a parent's deep love for his children. And that is a obviously very important and uplifting message that no matter how hard things are going, we have to realize that Hashem loves us just as much as any healthy and normal loving parent loves his or her children. Uh, lastly, just to mention briefly the menorah. The menorah, of course, is the most ornate and uh, complex of all of the uh, kalim in the Mishkan, or the Mikdash. And here too, Rabbeinu Bachai says on a shot level, it is done to instill in us the awe and respect for the magnificent beauty of everything around the Mishkan. Abarbanel says it symbolizes spiritual attainment. The seven branches symbolize the seven branches of wisdom, all the flames pointing inward towards the middle flame, the Kosha Kadoshim, symbolizing that all wisdom ultimately comes from the Torah. The Torah's presentation of the command and all of the specific details of how to build the Mishkan and its constituent parts, all of the utensils, all of the kalim, begins in Perch of Hay, Patsuches, with the very famous introductory verse, V'asuli Mikdash, V'shachanti Bisocham. That is the lead, that is the headline, you will make a sanctuary, a Mikdash, and I will dwell within it. The Sukkim then continue to describe how Hashem says, and I'm going to give you the details of all of the building plans, and you will follow them to the letter, you will build it exactly as I described. And then the Torah begins by going into the first of the critical utensils, the critical kalim, which will be described and built, and that is the ark, the aron. Vasu aron atzechitim, you'll make it out of acacia wood. And then the psukim go in to describe the specific measurements of how to build the particular of the aron of the ark.
the Medrash Rabbah in Parsha Lamed Beis wonders about an inconsistency in the Psukim. On the one hand, the introductory Pasuk which we began with, which describes the building of the entire Mishkan, is said in the plural, V'asu, and you, in the plural, will build. However, the Medrash notes, when it comes to all of the other Kalim, the Torah formulates these commands in the singular, V'asita, and you, in the singular, will build. With one exception. What's the only exception to that? The first of the Kalim, the Pasuk that we read, V'asu aron atseishitim, asu in the plural. So the Medrash is bothered by this and wonders, how come with all of the other Kalim, it's in the singular, but only when it comes to the aron, it is in the plural. So initially, the Medrash gives a very beautiful answer. And that is that because the aron housed the luchos and the Torah, it clearly symbolizes Torah study. It's the embodiment of that. And therefore, the fact that the word asu is written in the plural highlights the fact, says the Medrash, in, the, in our belief in the democracy of Torah, the democratization of knowledge. That is to say, Judaism does not believe that the Torah is reserved for only a specific group or an elite few. Unlike other leadership positions or other crowns, as it were, in Judaism, which in fact are reserved for certain families or people with specific lineage, Torah, which is the most important crown and the most important value in Judaism, that is fully open to all. Anyone who wants to put in the time and the effort to study and learn, Torah is open and accessible to everyone. That is highlighted, the Medrash says so beautifully, by the plural, the asu, that you in the plural shall make the aron. However, the Medrash then continues in the very next paragraph and says, Davar Acher will give a second and additional explanation in answer to this question. However, curiously, the Medrash never really says exactly what the answer is, but immediately launches into three very fascinating metaphors to describe the relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. First, Atem Tzoni Va'ani Ro'eh. You are the cattle, the sheep, and I am the shepherd, says Hashem. Secondly, Atem Kerem Va'ani Shomer. The Jewish people are like a vineyard, and God says He is like the watchman. And lastly, very beautifully, Atem Banim Va'ani Avichem. You are like children, and I am like your father. In the very very beautiful Sefer, Be'er Yosef, Rav Yosef Zundel Salant has an incredible essay where he quotes this Medrash, and he asks two penetrating questions. Number one, he asks, what does the Medrash here in this second paragraph, what does it have in mind by these three different mishalim, these three different comparisons, these metaphors for Hashem's relationship with the Jewish people? What's the difference between the three? What is the Medrash trying to accomplish? And perhaps more importantly, and more critically, the Medrash, excuse me, Rav Salant, the Be'er Yosef, asks, how is this an answer to the question? What does it have to do with the first answer? The Medrash began by answering this beautiful idea of the plural language highlights the fact that everyone can study Torah. Then the Medrash indicates that there'll be a second answer, and the second answer is just a list of these three metaphors. But it never explains not only the purpose of the three metaphors, but what does the metaphors have to do with the first answer? How does it relate back to the question Bechlal. So these are, just to understand, simple shot in the Medrash, very critical and basic questions. So the Ber Yosef explains as follows. He says the first part of the Medrash is explaining 
how critical Torah study is. And in fact, you should realize, says the Ber Yosef, that in every generation, not only every Jew, but every generation, a person needs connection to Torah and to mitzvot. A person's lifeline will always be through the Torah. However, he continues and he explains that the second answer in the Medrash is coming to anticipate an obvious question that will be asked eventually at some point in history, which is that all of that and the importance of Torah is highlighted by the Mishkan and the Aron. But what happens when a time comes when we don't have a Mishkan anymore? When we don't have an Aron? So it's true that the Gemara says that we always have the study of Torah and that the modern-day shuls and Batei Medrash and Yeshivot are symbolic or continuations of the Mishkan. But nevertheless, we have a real challenge when we don't have our central spiritual home like the Beis HaMikdash. So says the Be'er Yosef, the Medrash is coming to describe three different situations in history. The first of the examples is unfortunately when we find ourselves strangers in a strange land. We are outcasts, we need help. In these instances, says the Medrash, I am like your shepherd, God says, I'll take care of you, you won't be forsaken. However, says the Medrash, there'll be other times when you'll be living in a galus, and you'll be very welcomed. You'll dwell in peace. You'll have all sorts of freedom of rights and all sorts of things. It'll be great. So Hashem comes and tell you, tells us, even then you need my protection. You're a vineyard. You think you have delicious grapes. You think everything's fine. But you need a shomer in order to survive. But then the Medrash continues and concludes with the final metaphor, and that of the father and his children. And says, Be'er Yosef, that is hearkening back to the original. That is to say, even though the Torah can survive in any type of golus, the positive and the negative, the ideal is when we're home in the land of Israel with our base of Mikdash, only then can we truly be like a parent and his children. What is the purpose of the Mishkan? What is, what is its essence? What is it trying to accomplish how are we supposed to relate to it, understand what Hashem has in mind, what its purpose is for us? These are all very simple, straightforward, perhaps even obvious questions, but they're certainly quite profound, and the significance of the answer to those questions, whatever the answer is, obviously is going to have tremendous consequence on our understanding of our relationship with Hashem and our understanding of this so important and central aspect of Jewish life, the Mishkan that is being described in our Parsha, and then eventually the more permanent Beis HaMikdash. The Medrash in Shmos Rabbah in Parsha Lamed Gimel addresses this question in a powerful, even emotional, and very close reading of the opening of our Parsha. The Psukim at the beginning of our Parsha, of course, in Per Chavhe, uh, Pasuk Beis, tells us, V'yikhu li truma. Hashem tells them that they need to make a collection for the ultimate building of the Mishkan and all of the different utensils, the kalim, that will go into it. And then a few psukim later in Pasuk Ches, of course, we read about that ultimate purpose, the famous Pasuk, V'asuli mikdash v'shachanti b'socham, you will make for me a mikdash, a home, a tabernacle, a mikdash, and I will dwell within them. The Medrash seems to be bothered by the fact that in both of these critical psukim here at the outset of our parsha, there's an unnecessary insertion of the word li. Why couldn't the parsha, the pasuk have just said v'yichu truma, take, gather, donate a contribution to build the mishkan? Why couldn't it just say v'asu mikdash, 
Shachanti Bitocham. Make a Mikdash, and I will dwell within it. Yet in both of these Sukkim, you have the insertion, seemingly unnecessarily so, of the word Li. Vichu Li Truma. Take for me a donation. Asu Li Mikdash. Vishachanti Bitocham. Make for me a Mikdash. But the purpose that you're doing it for God seems to be self-evident. It is Hashem commanding uh, in, in the Pesukim themselves the diktuk, uh, the grammar anyway indicates it being for Hashem v'shachanti b'socham So why is the necessity of the word li in these Pesukim? It seems to be a little bit too focused. Why make it so personal? Why the repeated use of the word li? So in order to answer this question the Medrash answers by taking a step back and addressing that more fundamental question that we started with, which is, what's the purpose of the Mishkan? And in order to answer that question, the Midrash here makes an incredible assertion. And that is that according to the Midrash, the mitzvah of the Mishkan actually was not told to the Jewish people until after the sin of the golden calf, after the Chet Egel. Now this is an amazing assertion, because of course in the order of the Psukim themselves, we are now reading about the construction of the Mishkan, but we won't read about the sin of the golden calf for two weeks until we get to Parshas Kitisa. And yet, what the Medrash is telling us, something which we've seen in a previous shear in this series, that there is a theory that's accepted at least among some members of Chazal and some Mepharshim of Ein Muktam Umuchar Batora that there are situations in which, for reasons which we don't always understand, the Torah will present things not in their correct chronology. And this is an example of that. The psukim that detail the building of the Mishkan are presented before the sin of the golden calf, but yet says the Medrash explicitly, and in fact Rashi in a number of places endorses this view as well, that in fact the Mishkan was given to the Jewish people after the sin of the Chete Egel, after the Egel, Specifically because, says the Medrash here, it was a response to the Chet Egel. In fact, the Medrash explains in really beautiful and almost emotional terms, it can be understood uh, in a very deep way by analyzing the Pasuk in Shir Hashirim, in Parakei Pasuk Bet, where we read that it says, Ani Yeshena v'libi er. I am sleeping, but my heart you know, is awake is aroused, is pounding. And we know that all of Shir Hashirim is a metaphor for the Jewish people's relationship with Hashem. And here, according to one interpretation, the Medrash says, what does it mean, Ani Yishena? That's the Jewish people saying that we are not just tired, but exhausted in the sense of Choser Tikva. We have given up hope. We have lost hope. Why, says the Medrash? Ani Yishena? That is to say, we realize the terrible sin as a nation that we did when we sinned with the golden calf. And of course, Hashem got upset at us. He distances himself from us. And says the Medrash, the Jewish people are saying metaphorically, we have lost hope. Will Hashem ever forgive us? When will he take us back? However, the Pasuk continues and says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says the Medrash, Martik Alai. The Medrash says that the word libi, my heart, in this context is a metaphor for Hashem. Hashem is the heart of the nation of Israel. What a beautiful, powerful image in its own right. Hashem is that pulsating heart. It is what gives us life. 
is our relationship with Hashem. Libi air, even though Ani Yishena, even though I am exhausted at, in a certain sense out of depression, out of a total loss of hope in a future relationship with Hashem, when I'm at my lowest, Libi air. Kaddish Baruch Hu Martikalai, it's Hashem who is knocking, so to speak, on the door, trying to shake us out of our despondent state and tell us, no, 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 it's not over. I was upset at you, and you deserve to be punished, you deserved my anger. But that doesn't mean I want to abandon you forever. I want to come back to you. And therefore, I want to reunite with you. And therefore, says the Medrash, that is why the Psukim say, Yichu li truma, asu li mikdash, because it's very personal. Why is Hashem saying to build a Mishkan? Hashem is saying, let's try again. Let's reunite. But we need to do it in a different, better way than we did last time. Let's, we can't repeat the mistakes of the past. Make me a home. Let's reunite. And as the Medrash ends in so powerful way, Hashem says, I don't want to be outside anymore. I left, but I want to be with you. Make me a home. In commanding the construction of the menorah, we read in Perak Chavhei, Pasuk Lamed Aleph, that Moshe is told, V'yasisa menorah zahav tahor, you will make a menorah of pure gold, miksha teaseha, and it shall be beaten out of a solid piece of gold. And then the Pasuk goes on to list all the many details that go into the menorah, as we then see in the continuation of the psukim, there are an inordinate number of details. In fact, I think it's clear to say that the menorah was the most complex and detailed of all of the different parts, all the different kelim in the mikdash. Rashi quotes a very well-known medrash in the Tanhuma that senses and notices the shift in language, that initially Moshe is commanded with an active verb, vasisa. However, just a few words later, we are told, miksha teaseha. Ha-menorah, that the menorah will be beaten, it will be hewn out of that single piece of gold. What exactly is going on? So the Medrash tells us that in fact Moshe initially tried to build the menorah, and once he was you know, unsuccessful and he couldn't do it anymore, then, and only then, <clears throat> Hashem says to Moshe, just take the gold, throw it into the fire, and in fact it ended up being produced miraculously. And that's why the language is teaseha, because in the end it didn't happen by Moshe actively doing it, but happened, so to speak, on its own, miraculously, from Hashem. Very, very fascinating a medrash here quoted by Rashi. However, uh, the Sfasemes and others, but we're focusing on the Sfasemes, he wonders, what is going on here? If it turned out that it was too hard for Moshe, then Hashem obviously knew that would be the case. Why didn't Hashem just build it? from scratch. Why make Moshe go through the motions? And if it really was doable, then why did Moshe not complete the task, and why did Hashem let him off the hook? Hashem should have waited and forced Moshe to finish it. Evidently, it really was too hard, but if it was too hard, why did Hashem not just make it on his own right away? Says this Fasemes, this medrash, and this insight, is in fact not only true about Moshe and the menorah in this one instance, but in many ways it is a paradigm for all people and all mitzvos. Says the Svasemis, ultimately, there is simply no way for any human being, not Moshe, and certainly not the rest of us, to truly understand exactly what Hashem wants completely, truly get it right 100%. It's just by definition impossible. It's beyond our capabilities and capacities. 
as a finite human being. Hashem, the infinite, the Ein Sof, the ultimate. How could we as human beings truly understand, let alone truly and perfectly and completely accomplish everything that Hashem wants? However, says the Svasemes, despite that problem, which is just by definition in, in an immovable uh, problem, we are not free from trying, as the saying goes. Says the Svasemes, it's true that our abilities may be limited, but our efforts or our ratzon to do the right thing are in fact unlimited. And therefore, it was only when Moshe first tried, and seeing that, that Hashem did Hashem then intervene and help and bless his efforts. However, if Moshe hadn't tried, then Hashem would have had no motivation and certainly never would have, in fact, intervened. It's certainly, it's a complex combination of events, of causes, and in certain ways it's paradoxical, but says the Sfasemes, it's absolutely critical to understanding our role in the world in our relationship with Hashem. There are actions that we are commanded to do, and yet we know on some level from the start we can never be sure that we're really doing them perfectly. At the same time, we have a promise, just like Moshe did, that if we put in all of our efforts and we truly do our best, in that case, says the Sfasemis, I'll read you his words, then nigmar If we can really demonstrate the effort in the Ratzon, then in the end, we will be successful, but not necessarily because of a direct result of our efforts, but Hashem, like He did with Moshe, will intervene and in fact be successful. What Hashem really wants is that Ratzon. But the only way we can truly demonstrate that we have that Ratzon is by doing the mitzvah. We can't just sit and think, I want to do a mitzvah. We actually have to do it. We have to study it. We have to understand it. We have to put in our best efforts to then do it right. When we do that, like Moshe did, then Hashem will intervene. So this fascinating and challenging insight into the whole enterprise of religion and how Hashem interacts with us despite our, by definition, finite limitations, says the Svasemes, that profound theological truth and the way Judaism understands Hashem interacting and helping us bridge that chasm between the finite and the infinite, that's all contained and hinted at in this beautiful medrash quoted by Rashi. Svasemes actually makes uh, another point based on this, quoting from his grandfather, the founding Ger Rebbe, the Chidush Arim, and that is on the famous statement of Chazal, Yagati Umatsati Ta'amin. I worked hard, and I found it. If someone says that, you should believe him. Now, of course, the simple understanding is that, you know, if a person puts in the effort and says, I was successful, you can believe that because success is the product of effort. That's clearly the gist of Chazal. However, the Chidush Arim was bothered by why did the Gemara choose to express this with Umatsati, a matziah, that word matzati, matziah, is a term that's used for finding something. And we know from other statements in Chazal and just from human experience, we often find things in the Gemara's term, behesachadas. You know, we stumble on things. It's not necessarily, you know, a search mission where we're dafka looking for something. We often stumble on things, we find things. A matziah is often something that happens almost by accident. So why would we use that term to express the success that comes from all of our efforts? And says the Chidush the same idea that we're saying here, that in fact, ultimately, the final success is a matziah. It's a gift from Hashem. It's not something that we necessarily deserved or we accomplish, I should say. However, we only get the gift from Hashem, only get the Metziah, if we are first 
Yagia, if we put in the effort. In the words of the Svasemes, so beautifully, Mi Yacholim Tzoha Emet Aidei Yigiyasa, who could find it purely on their own efforts? Raksha Hashem Yisbrach Noteb Matana, V'derech Metziah Aidei Hagia. Hashem will give it to us as a gift, if we've worked hard and deserve it. Our parsha famously begins with the Jewish people being instructed to make donations towards the construction of the Mishkan. The Jewish people are told, Take for me a donation. Take this donation from anyone for whom there will be a generous and open heart. The Mefarshim, many commentaries, both classic and contemporary, are bothered by a seemingly peculiar choice of words here in this Pasuk. If you are asking the Jewish people to give money towards the donation, towards the campaign of the building of the Mishkan, shouldn't the Pasuk have read, V'yitnu li truma, give for me a donation? Why does the Torah say, V'yikhu li truma? Could you imagine a fundraiser from your local shul asking you uh, for a donation to help with the building campaign? And by asking you, they say, can you please take a donation for us? It doesn't make any sense. Of course, the question and the request would be, can you give a donation to us? So why does the apostle say, V'yikhuli truma? So among the many answers that are given, one possible answer is that, in fact, we have numerous sources in Chazal which indicate that by giving money that in charity, that's actually a skula for wealth. Famously, the Gemara Masechta Tainis, Daftes, and in other places, has a teaching based on the Pasuk in Devarim, Aser ta aser, you shall surely tithe. And in a play on words, the Gemara says, Aser b'shvil shetit asher, tithe so that you should become wealthy. Rather than depleting your wealth, rather than becoming hurt, being injured by donation and being charitable, Chazal promise us that you will not be hurt at all by being charitable and giving donations. If anything, you will be materially rewarded even in this world. That's one possible answer. That's why it says, the yikhuli truma, because really you're taking for yourself. It's a great investment in your own portfolio by giving charity. The Beis HaLevi gives a similar, but I think a slightly different, uh, more subtle and frankly more profound answer. The Beis HaLevi says, you really only own something, paradoxically, once you've given it away and used it for tzedakah. All that money you have in your investment account, in your bank account, uh, under your mattress, in the piggy, you know, in the cookie uh, you know, drawer, all that stuff, you're just holding money. But it's not really yours. You only have it once you've given it away. While you have it, first of all, God forbid, you could lose it. It could be a crash. Who knows what could happen to the economy? God forbid it could be stolen, there could be damage, who knows? Second of all, of course, we know after 120, as the saying goes, you can't take it with you. But if you give away the money, you use it for such worthy causes like tzedakah, so then you have benefited. The benefit of that money is now fixed. No one can never take that away from you. And in fact, you will actually be able to bring that, so to speak, with you. Uh, the Beis Levi, to support this insight, quotes a Gemara in Masech Baba Basra, Aleph, which explains that, that Munvaz HaMelech emptied his treasury for tzedakah, at which time he said, my forefathers saved money for, them, for others. I emptied my treasury for myself. What is he talking about? What does that mean? Says Basilevi, it's exactly this point. My forefathers saved money 
but it really wasn't for themselves. They died, they didn't take the money with them, they ended up saving it for other people, for me and their other descendants. I gave away money, but I did it in a certain sense for myself, because I'm benefiting from the tzedakah and the reward that I'll get, that no one can take it away from me. As the Beis HaLevi concludes very beautifully, Nimsa tahanesina l'tzedakah, hu l'kicha l'atzmo, deragzehu shalom. And that's what the Pasuk means. By giving donations to the Mishkan, by giving tzedakah, by using your money for worthy and charitable causes, in a very meaningful way, it's truly becoming yours at that moment. In a way that just having money, using it for physical objects, for toys, so to speak, uh, or just holding it in the bank, uh, will never be. So whichever of these interpretations one prefers, the common denominator is that the Pasuk is highlighting the benefits that one gets from giving charity, from donating to someone like the Mishkan. And yet, there is a very peculiar Midrash on the Pasuk here in our Parsha, which is noted by the Bahaturim. The Midrash in the Yalkut Shemoni says that the words Daber el B'nei Yisrael allude to the fact that Hashem was speaking al-derech pius. He was asking very, very nicely to the Jewish people to make the donation. He was really begging them. And the Balaturim explains that he had to use this lashon of pius, this really, really nice request and begging, because the Jewish people were being asked to give up money. They were going to lose money, therefore Hashem had to ask really, really nicely. Now you might say that makes sense, it's only derech eretz, and frankly, good, smart fundraising to ask people to give money in a nice way. And yet, as the altar of Kelm, the famed, uh, one of the fathers of the Muslim movement, uh, asks in his sefer, this really is hard to understand. After all, the Jewish people at that moment were incredibly, enormously, unfathomably wealthy. They had emptied out Egypt, all of the gold and silver, when they left Egypt. And then even a week later, they got even more money when they plundered the chariots of the Egyptians after they'd washed up on the banks of the Amsa for even more gold, more silver, more money. So they were incredibly wealthy. Plus, they're being asked to donate a relatively small amount of money. Plus, the donations was going to be something that was going to help the Jewish people. They're going to have Hashem's presence in their midst with the Mishkan. If they sin, now they have a Mishkan where they can offer karbanos and be forgiven. And for this, Hashem has to ask twice. For this, Hashem has to beg. This is a small amount of money to enormously wealthy people for their own good. Hashem is begging, what's going on here? And he gives a marshal. He says, think about it. If one person helped another person start a business, and that second person became incredibly wealthy, and then the first person asked the second person for a small donation, would he have to ask twice? Would he have to beg? That second person would say, of course I'll give you. You helped me. You were my mentor. You gave me my first investment. Without you, I would have nothing. I'd have no money without you. Of course I'll help you. Of course I'll give you a donation. And if you're telling me the donation is actually for my own benefit, (laughs) even more so. So what's going on? Why does Hashem have to beg? Says Altar of Kelm, you see here something incredibly powerful. The power of the Yetzirah. Once a person gets money in his or her pocket, it is almost instinctive, it is natural to tell oneself, Kochiv this came because I was smart, because I worked hard. It's all because of me. And once you have that thought, it is so hard to pry it away from the person. And therefore, in a Hanami, Hashem had to have peace, we had to ask. But this highlights how easily we can be tied into thinking the money is really ours.